0: Well, I'm sure that you would agree that there are some people in this world whom you could only describe as passionate. Passionate. For them, there is one thing that is all-important. It's constantly on their mind. They're always talking about it. They invest large amounts of time and money into it. And so take, for example, serious Star Trek fans. Trekkies, as they like to be called. You know, some of these people are so passionate about Star Trek that they like to dress up as Star Trek characters and they like to go to all the Star Trek conventions and and some of them have have even learnt an imaginary language called Klingon. I mean, their passion is completely obvious, isn't it? Or then there are the passionate football fans. You know, the ones who go to all the games the ones that know all the statistics, all the history of their team. They own all the paraphernalia. They get a tattoo of their team's logo. They have a a football-themed wedding. (laughs) They like to paint themselves with their team colours or paint their sheep with their team (laughs) colours, as the case may be. They they might even have a football-themed car. You have to admit, that is pretty cool, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But whether they're a Trekkie or a paraphanatic, or a foodie or a a Mac fanboy or, or whatever else, these people are passionate about something. That's what gets their heart racing. That's what gets their blood pumping. Well, friends, welcome to Mission Month 2014. Over the next five weeks, we're going to spend some time thinking about this whole idea of Christian mission. We're going to be thinking about the history of mission. We're going to be thinking about prayer for mission. We're going to be thinking about giving to mission. We're going to be thinking about going on mission. Lots of other things too. I wonder how that makes you feel. How does that make you feel? The fact that we'll be spending the next five weeks thinking about mission I wonder if that's something that gets your heart racing, your blood pumping. I wonder if mission is something that you are passionate about, something that makes you go, yeah, or is it something that makes you go, (laughs) meh? Well, today we're going to be thinking, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at what the Bible has to say about mission. And no, we're not going to look at just one part of the Bible. What we've got to do today is we're going to look at at the whole Bible together to see what it has to say about mission, the whole Bible. Um, So I hope you don't have any plans for lunch uh, or dinner. Uh, Don't worry, don't worry. It'll be just a a quick overview of of what the the whole Bible has to say about mission. So let's get to it, shall we? And let's start at the very beginning. At the very beginning, when there is just God... In the beginning, there is just God, nothing else. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons of the Trinity living together in perfect unity without need for anything else or anyone else. But there in the beginning, God has a desire, a desire to create, and so he does. He makes the heavens and the earth. He creates the multitude of stars and planets that fill our night sky. He makes the sun and the moon and the earth. And the great continents and the mighty oceans. He makes the forests and the deserts and the polar caps. He makes the myriads of fish and mammals and reptiles and insects. He makes it all. And then when he does, God says the most extraordinary thing. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so God does. It's extraordinary. It is the climax of his creation and, in fact, the ultimate purpose of his creation. God creates the man and the woman in his own image. In other words, out of all that he's made, they are unique. They alone can have an intimate and personal relationship with God, their creator. They alone can truly know him and enjoy him. Because in the beginning, that was God's desire. And so God gives the man and the woman life. And he blesses them. And he speaks with them. And he walks with them. And he shares himself with them in a unique and wonderful way. So in the beginning, there is no mission. There is no need for mission. There is just God and his people in perfect unity. But of course, as we all know, that perfect unity didn't last. Because the man and the woman rebel against God listening to the lies of evil Satan, dressed up as a serpent. The man and the woman disobey God in their vain attempt to make themselves equal with God and so effectively to to do away with God. Now their relationship with God is shattered. Now humanity and God have become enemies. The people no longer living under God's blessing, but his curse. But interestingly, interestingly, even here in the very beginning, God does not crush these disobedient, ungrateful human creatures. But instead he gives a promise that one day the serpent's head would be crushed. It's a hint that a day will come when evil and rebellion will be no more. And a sign that even here, even here in the lowest moment of human history, a sign that God's great desire is still to be in relationship with people. And that's why, as the, ba- the pages of the Bible turn, it's why God persists with bro- people, even as brother kills brother, and mankind's wickedness requires a worldwide flood, and arrogant people build a tower in an attempt to, to even invade heaven itself. Despite all mankind's rebellion, God continues to bear with humanity through the generations. Until one day, hundreds of years later, with nations now spread across the face of the earth, now largely ignorant of God. It's then that God chooses to speak to one individual, to a man named Abraham. God tells Abraham that he is going to make his descendants into a great nation and that through him, that is through his descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. In the context of the Bible's storyline to this point, it is an extraordinary promise. A promise that through this man's descendants, humanity would once again be in relationship with God that somehow people of all the nations would come to know God and enjoy him and live for him, returning to the very purpose for which they'd been created. It is an extraordinary promise because in it we see God's great mission to the world, his mission to reconcile lost humanity to himself. And it's with that promise in mind that we now hit the fast-forward button on the Bible storyline and and jump approximately 500 years into the future from, from the time of Abraham, where we find a large group of people, descendants of Abraham, now living as slaves in the country of Egypt. It is these people who would soon form the nation of Israel, an otherwise insignificant people, except for the fact that through them, God had promised to bless the whole world. Through this one nation, he would bring blessing to all the nations. But how would he do that? Well, in the first place, God's strategy was to let his power and his justice and his wisdom and his blessing become so evident through his dealings with this one nation, Israel that other nations would hear of his mighty acts and so revere him and seek him. And so, for example, have you ever wondered why God brings ten plagues on the nations of Egypt? Remember when Pharaoh refuses to let Israel go? I mean, surely God could have wiped out all of the Egyptians with just one single plague. So why ten then? And why the whole dramatic rescue through the Red Sea? Surely it's a a little bit excessive, wouldn't you say? Well, listen to what God says to Pharaoh and you'll hear the answer. God says, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see? Do you see why God rescues Israel from Egypt in such a miraculous and dramatic way? It's so his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That the surrounding nations might come to hear of God and, and of his greatness, that they might then seek him out and discover his greatness firsthand. Did it work? Well, you only have to fast forward one more generation or so to hear what the Canaanite woman Rahab says to the Israelite spies when they visit her town of Jericho. Rahab says, we, that that is the Canaanites, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, when we heard of it. Our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. See, See, God's name is now being proclaimed in the nations as he does miracles for the people of Israel. And already non-Israelites like Rahab are seeking refuge in him and being incorporated into God's people. But there are other ways that God used Israel in his mission to reach the nations. So think for a moment about the laws that God gave the Israelites, the laws he gave them at Mount Sinai. Look at what God says to Israel when he first gives them his laws. He says, observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, God's desire was that as the Israelites lived according to his good laws, that they would reflect his great wisdom and understanding to all the surrounding nations that that would then make them sit up and take notice of God. Again, drawing them in to find him. Even Israel's great temple was designed as a place where foreigners could stand in awe of God. Not only as they marvelled at the magnificent buildings, but also as God answered their prayers when they did indeed come seeking him there. And so at the, te- the, at the dedication of the temple, just after it's built, this is what King Solomon prays. He prays, as, the as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and praise toward this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And so you see again foreigners being drawn in to Israel. And they're finding great blessing as they come into relationship with God. And so Israel was to be a a kind of light to the nations. And like moths are attracted to a light, the people of the nations were to be drawn in, drawn in towards Israel and ultimately drawn in toward their God. That was God's strategy of blessing the nations through Israel. And so I'm sure you can understand why God got so upset when Israel failed time and and time again to be the people he wanted them to be, failing to trust him, failing to obey him, failing to glorify and worship him as they should. Rather than being a light to the nations, they were often more of a stench, actually rivaling the pagan nations around them in their wickedness, And so giving God a bad name among the nations. Not only failing to draw the nations towards God, but actually repelling them. Obviously that problem of sin, that problem of human rebellion that entered the world through the first man and woman remained. And while ever that problem of sin remained, God's desire to be reconciled to the peoples of this world could never be fulfilled. But God always had a plan. A plan to fix this problem of sin once and for all. A plan that would entail his own divine son, Jesus, taking on flesh and blood, becoming human, and then coming to live among sinful humanity. Being the pure light to the nations that Israel failed to be plan that entailed Jesus dying on a cross. Though innocent, bearing the sins of the world. In his death, facing the full curse of God on sinners. That forgiveness and reconciliation might now come to all those who put their trust in him. John chapter 3 puts it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God's great desire was to be reconciled with the people of his creation. And now through Jesus and his death on the cross, that became possible. Reconciliation was always God's great desire. And no more clearly do we see that than in the death of his own son, Jesus. But of course, as we know, Jesus didn't stay dead, but was raised to life again. And after his resurrection, Jesus introduced a change of strategy a change of strategy in how the nations would now be blessed. Now Abraham's descendants, the ones through whom God would bless the world, wouldn't be Jews alone, but all those who put their trust in Jesus, regardless of their nationality. Now the ones bringing the light to the nations would be all those who trust and obey Jesus, Christians. And rather than waiting for the nations to come to them, Now they would go to the nations, proclaiming the good news of reconciliation through Jesus. On the night before Jesus died on the cross, he indicated this change of strategy when he prayed for his disciples, saying, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then he goes on. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. See, now, Jesus sends all believers into the world. Now there are just two categories of people. There is the world, non-Christians, and then there are those sent into the world. Now every Christian is on mission with God. And nowhere did Jesus spell that out more clearly than in the best-known mission statement in the Bible. The Great Commission, where he charges his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See again, he's sending them out. Commissioning, commissioning them to go. And to proclaim to all the earth who Jesus is and what he's done. To offer the message that hope and forgiveness and reconciliation are freely available to all who put their trust in Jesus. And notice here notice that jesus is so passionate about this mission that he promises to be right there beside them every step of the way to the very end of the age empowering them through his holy spirit until the task is complete it's a mission which we see in the pages of the new Te- that we see in the pages of the new testament that the, 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 the disciples faithfully took up sharing the gospel wherever they went, such that what began as a small group of believers grew and grew to thousands upon thousands of believers, men and women and children of of many nations, finding forgiveness of sins. The message spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria to the very centre of the Roman Empire and then in the centuries that followed to the ends of the earth despite the most extraordinary obstacles, the message of Jesus reaching the farthest flung nations of the world, nations like China and Papua New Guinea and, yes, even Australia. And so it is that we reach our own period of salvation history, a time in which every Christian is still sent, still called to go, still called to proclaim the good news of Jesus among the nations, to the many, many people groups who are yet to hear it. But though that brings us up to the present time, that's not all the Bible has to say on God's great plan for the nations. Because God, in his his kindness and in his wisdom, has given us, his church, a glimpse of how this whole story of mission finishes. There in the final pages of the Bible, we're given a breathtaking vision of the new heavens and earth that await us. Now, Satan has been crushed forever, just as God promised. And evil is seen no more. But what is seen is a great crowd of people gathered from all the nations of the earth, standing before the throne of God, praising him at the top of their lungs, is a magnificent picture. Listen to how it's described. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Oh, what a, what a scene. What a scene. Now, now there is no more mission For now the mission is complete. Now God can forever revel in the fruit of his relentless mission to reconcile lost humanity to himself. Now his redeemed people are once again gathered round him, glorifying him and enjoying him and his blessings forever. It is the ending that God always wanted And the one that he has passionately pursued from the very first page of the Bible to the very last. And that, friends, is exactly the point that I hope you can see clearly today. That God's passion for the nations to know him is what the whole Bible is about. That's what God is. And always has been on about. The peoples of the earth knowing him. And giving him the glory he deserves. It's why he created us in his own image in the first place. It's why he promised a saviour way back when Adam and Eve first sinned. It's why he made those stunning promises to Abraham and then faithfully fulfilled them. It's why he used Israel as a light to the nations. It's why he allowed his own son Jesus to bear the sins of the world on the cross. It's why he's now sent us Christians into the world to proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus. And it's why all history will culminate in that joyful scene in Revelation where God's passion for the world leads people of all nations to worship him with grateful hearts for all that he's done. It is a relentless pursuit that's written into the beginning of the Bible, all the way to the end of the Bible, every page in between. Friends, when we think about people of this world who we might describe as, as passionate it's clear to see that there is none more passionate than God. God who is passionate for all the peoples of this world, longing to set them free from the sin that binds them and longing to restore them to the freedom of living with him as their king. And so, yes, friends... Welcome to Mission Month 2014. Over the coming weeks, we'll be thinking about the history of mission, prayer for mission, giving to mission, going on mission. So let me ask you again, how does that make you feel? Does it make you go, yeah! Or does it make you go, meh? Yeah? Or, meh? Which one is it? Yeah. (laughs) Pleased to hear it. But Christian, if it's meh, then you need to realise that you have a serious problem. For your God... Your Saviour, your Heavenly Father, has at the very centre of his heart a deep, passionate longing for this world, for all the peoples of this world. And as his church, his great desire is that you and I would share with him in that passion that we might be the instruments by which he blesses the peoples of this world as we now go and make disciples of Jesus from every nation. And so, friend, the simple truth is, if you truly do want to be a godly Christian, if you truly do want to be a Christ-like Christian, then you're going to have to take on God's heart for mission. If you're a Christian and mission is simply not a priority around which you shape your life, then something needs to change. And you need to ask God to ignite in your heart his blazing passion, to reach out with his love to those who don't yet know him. The fact is, Me is not an option. As the 20th century pastor and author, James S. Stewart, wrote, the concern for world evangelisation is not something tacked on to a man's personal Christianity, which he can take or leave as he chooses. It is rooted in the character of the God who has come to us in Christ Jesus. Thus it can never be the province of a few enthusiasts, a sideline or a specialty of those who happen to have a bent that way. It is the distinctive mark of being a Christian. Friends, our God's heart is a mission heart, a heart that beats for all the peoples of this world. He's promised to bless them and his great desire is to use you and me to do so. And so, friends, as we begin this mission month, as we set aside this time to think about how we can be more involved in God's mission, let's humble our hearts, shall we? Let's humble our hearts. Let's turn our mares into years. And let's get ready to join our great God in his passionate pursuit of the nation's. Can I hear a yeah? Yeah. Can I hear a yeah? Yeah. (laughs) It's a start. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you uh, so very much that you have so clearly demonstrated to us your great passion for the peoples of this world, Uh, a passion emblazoned on the pages of the Bible from beginning to end, passion so deep that it's gone even as far as sending your own son Jesus to die for our sin that we might be reconciled to you our father we humble our hearts before you now and we repent of our failure to grasp the importance and and the urgency of our mission we pray that you might ignite your passion for the nations in our hearts We pray that you would use us, both as individuals and as a church, to bring the light of Christ to the world. We pray that you would open our eyes this mission month to some ways that we can go about doing that. Father, like you, we long for the day when we and all your people will be gathered around your throne singing your praises, glorifying you and enjoying you forever. So now, Father, please shape our hearts and our minds and our lives around that sure and wonderful hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.